we just placed the first uh, insurance certificate as an NFT through, oh, wow. right, through the blockchain. You know? So we yeah. were the first ones to do that. So we as a company have embraced the technology. Welcome to The Defense Never Rests with Morgan and Akins, your monthly dose of uncommon sense about all things legal and some that are not. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Defense Never Rest. I'm your host, Megan, joined by Melissa again. Hi, Melissa. Hello, Megan. How are you doing? I'm great on this sunny, beautiful Tuesday. Yes. August. <laughs> Soaking it up before the 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 cold the cold front hits. But I'm actually I'm OK with it because uh, it's been a little intolerable lately. Yeah, it has been. And this I'm week like, isn't looking much better. Nope. I'm, I'm seeing the Halloween things coming up. Um, there's like fall things in the stores already back to school is happening and I'm ready for it. I'm, I'm okay. I'm not, I, I, I want a little bit more of summer. I, I mean, I am kind of ready for school for some, some reasons, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I don't, I get a little sad in August, you know, yeah. that I'm like, Oh, the summer just flew by. And then you, you know, but, and then you're like, Oh God, it's almost Christmas, you know? And then <laughs> I know it's, it's, it's like a race. It just goes from here. Yeah. But anyway, we, we digress. So today yeah. we have on Donna McConnell um, and she is the manager director of claims at IMA, which is a insurance broker um, headquartered in Denver. Um, and she's, she has an awesome long career that she, she started, you know, in insurance and then became a lawyer and then went back into insurance and had private practice mixed in the, in the, in the, in the bowl there. Uh, yeah. so it's kind of seen it all from all different angles. So, you know, and you were the one who, who initially found her. So I know. did. And she's so great to talk to. And she just has so much experience because like you said, she's done it from the attorney side. She's done it from the adjuster side and the broker side. So like she can really, she has like a, a real 3d understanding of yeah. a claim. So I, I, I think that she has such invaluable information to share. Yeah. And just a delightful person. So let's just bring Absolutely. her <laughs> Good afternoon, Donna. Thank you for joining us this morning or this afternoon, I should say, on the defense of arrest. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for inviting me, Megan. Well, I, I should actually give Melissa the credit because Melissa invited you, but I'm, I'm equally as happy to have you. <laughs> I, know, I know this is great. And um, Donna is in Colorado and we had talked before the show started and I was sharing with her how much I love Red Rocks, oh. and the, the best venue in the world. So Donna is is coming to us from Colorado and uh, is the sun shining out there at least? It is. It okay, is. Good. <laughs> I've got the window right over here. <laughs> Gorgeous. Um, where in Colorado are you? So my office is right downtown Colorado, right next to Union Station. I okay. live about 20 miles south of there in Parker. Okay. So I'm sitting in my home office today. Yeah, my, my brother lives in Summit County. Um, okay. I'm yeah. I must confess, I've been in Colorado since 2013, and my geography isn't great. I usually consult with one, with my best friend who's a native. When so, I honestly could not even tell you where Summit County is, but I've heard of it. <laughs> yeah, it, it's near like A Basin and I think Vail is uh, in the area. Okay. Um, right. He's yeah, he he's been there for forever. Um, but yeah, I was just out in Denver. Well, just out in Denver. I was out in Denver in the fall of 2019. <laughs> But, mm, but that was like, like it was just yesterday, right? I think that was my last <laughs> conference I went to pre-pandemic. Um, and but Denver is a great, great city. I love it. So, but we're not here to talk about geography and 
we can, I guess, but that's not the whole point. <laughs> but, you know, as we talked prior to the prior to recording, you 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 do tune into the podcast. So you kind of know uh, the drill a little bit here that we like to really get to know our guests and how they got to where they are before we, you know, dive into the meatier topics. Um, but, you know, you're a lawyer by by trade. So, you know, we all have our stories and our, our paths of how, how we got there. So um, I'm curious as to what your path was. Absolutely. And I know some of your, I've listened to your podcast. I've heard some of your guests and many of your guests, I think, started out as lawyers. I actually started out in claims. Okay. So I, my undergrad degree was in psychology. And so when I was graduating and looking for work, I was looking for jobs in things like HR and things like that. But I had worked while in school for a document production company and we were doing a lot of work for insurance companies. So when I saw a opening for a claims trainee, I went and applied for it. So I actually started as a claims trainee right out of college with an auto carrier in California. So I learned from the ground up how to read policies, how to investigate accidents, interviewing witnesses and parties and started to build my career from that point. So I worked as an adjuster inside and outside um, as a field adjuster and as a desk adjuster in the auto liability and physical damage realm um, and got tapped to participate in a pilot program where we were kind of testing out this is back in the 80s and 90s testing out alternative dispute resolution so i was asked to take cases to mediation matters that were auto injury matters that needed that weren't settling so hey what if we get a mediator involved can we get these cases settled so that was my job for a while and i reported to an executive at the company who was an attorney and getting to know me, he said, you know, you should go to law school. I'm like, that sounds expensive. Very, very, <laughs> the faithful words. Um, but it turned out there was a law school right down the road from where I was working. And I was in Southern California. So if you guys aren't from there, I lived in Riverside and worked in Orange County, which during traffic is about a one and a half to two hour commute. Oh, wow. I oh, joke. I joke that I went to law school at night to avoid traffic. I literally took classes nights and weekends. So I was on a part-time law, getting, getting my law degree while working in insurance, um, going to school at night. And so that my two hour commute at five o'clock would be half hour commute at 10 o'clock. So I, you know, I got my law degree part-time while working full-time in insurance as a, as a claims adjuster. Did it, um, you, you sort of like when you first started telling us, I, you know, I, I was so jealous because you kind of got the, 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 the logistics and the real like base bones of practicing law when you were working as an adjuster where, you know, when you're, when you're, as you know, when you go into law school, everything is very theoretical. Uh, you know, it's abstract. You're thinking how to think like a lawyer, but you kind of were coming up from the ground up and, and you already had those investigative skills. Did, did that help you while you were going through law school? That's a great question. I think it did in certain aspects. Like I killed at torts. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. Right. I understood the basics of negligence. And right. so that, that 
course was was pretty straightforward. Contracts as well, because those were things that I was exposed to, but really in the practical, more real world post-loss realm. So I was, I did have that kind of practical experience. And I think it was priceless to learn how to investigate an accident, um, which you're never going to learn in law school, right? Right. Exactly. <laughs> well, that that's the thing. I could imagine it sometimes you, and during school, you being like, why are we learning all this theoretical <laughs> nonsense? Like, that's not how this works. You know? right. Like, oh, well, well, right. And then, you know, we're in California, I was in California where comparative negligence was, was, is a thing and you're learning about, you know, contributory negligence. So actually in, in some instances, it kind of tripped me up. Understanding the real world when you're, you know, studying for a law school exam kind of trips you up because you're thinking yeah. what happens right. for real, and you have to kind of re-enter that theoretical world. For sure. Like I, I remember a few years ago, I was talking to one of our colleagues about potentially taking the Maryland bar, and he was like, "What are you thinking?" And I was like, "Well, you know, we've been practicing for a while." He's like, "Yeah, that's right. You've been practicing for a while. You're not going to be any good at that test." No. <laughs> I can't even even imagine having to study for a bar exam right now. The thought of it is just, uh, I can't. No, no, I no. there's no time for that. Donna, how did your, did did you graduate with a degree in psychology? I did. Okay. So I always, I always think about this. This is in my theoretical dream world where I can be a student forever. (laughs) I I would love to study psychology because I feel that when you're practicing law, you can use so much of that when, you know, I mean, it sounds weird, but you got to get in people's heads sometimes. Did you feel that that helped you as well? Absolutely. When I was choosing a major, you know, back then I went to college, you had to choose a major and a lot of people were majoring in business and people said, you should major in business. It applies to everything. And I, and I was thinking psychology applies to everything. I'm about people. I yeah. want to help people. I like interacting with people. I'm a very social individual. So psychology spoke to me as a discipline and my theory was it's going to help me no matter what. And I, and my main job during college was waiting tables. So a psych degree with the background of, of restaurant work, waiting tables prepared me for anything. Yeah. And I would say that that has absolutely served me across the board in everything I've done, particularly as I started entering into leadership positions and dealing with not only folks reporting to me, but managing various priorities and different stakeholders in whatever I'm doing. It's a relationship business. Yes, absolutely. So take me through this though. So then you practiced for a while and then you went back to the the insurance. Okay. So let's talk through that process. What was that like for you? Interesting. So I had been, by the time I graduated law school and passed the bar, I had been working as an adjuster for about almost 10 years. So I had a lot of autonomy. I was handling complex cases. I was evaluating, negotiating, doing everything and having full ownership of litigated and non-litigated matters. So I go to work in a law firm as a junior associate, and suddenly I have zero autonomy. So I'm doing analysis, I'm writing, you know, motions, I'm reporting to a partner, 
and feeling really hamstrung. Yeah. I feel like a small piece of a much larger puzzle that I understand from a from a certain perspective. Um, but what I learned practicing law was how much different the job of the lawyer is compared to the claims professional. Yeah. And that was one of the criticisms that I received in my early years practicing law was you're digging, you're, you're kind of scratching the surface. And honestly, as adjusters, we're not doing the day to day depositions, motion practice, discovery, developing the evidence to ultimately help our case. We are being presented that often by counsel if we haven't developed it ourselves in the pre-litigation stage. So that was something that really gave me tremendous perspective about the day-to-day -day litigation management. So I appreciated that and I was a pretty good writer. So I got to work on some complex matters. I got to do some motions on some constitutional law matters and things like that. So I love that. That just really fed my, my lust for constant knowledge and, and study. And I just loved the challenge, but it was very different from what I had done. So when the opportunity arose to go back to insurance and also I took a pretty tremendous pay cut to go <laughs> practice law. So when I had the opportunity to go back and to have control and ownership of cases again, I jumped at it. Um, it, it and it just, the timing was such that it was the right place to be at the right time. Um, and that was in the nineties when construction defect in California was huge. So, and I had worked in con construction defect cases as an attorney with a partner. So I kind of got really deep into what happens on that side of the cases. And so to go back and be the claims professional responsible for the outcomes and the trajectory of those cases was very attractive. I, I wanted, I want to get back to construction defect, but I wanted to ask you, how are you, uh, do you, when, when you're managing claims uh, on the adjuster side versus on the attorney side, is it difficult to not want to take control over a case? Because I can only imagine putting myself in your shoes, going from an attorney then to an adjuster, um, wanting to do the work or wanting to take the reins. Do you just have to let it go? Is that like, is that how, like, how do you manage that? You have to trust. You have to, and you guys have had other guests who talk about the relationship with counsel. You have to learn to trust who your counsel is and have that really robust dialogue and communication. I always assumed I was in control. It, yeah, that, that was the presumption walking in. I'm in control of the outcome of this case. And I need my lawyers, my experts, my investigators to get me where I want to go. But ultimately, it comes down to my decision making and, and selling those decisions up the chain at a carrier. I worked at carriers. Um, so that was it, while I had a pretty broad amount of autonomy and authority, I wasn't handling cases typically within that authority. They were large seven and eight figure cases that required other people to buy in. So I took complete ownership of getting the cases where they needed to go and partnering with the folks I needed to partner with to get there. Yeah. Right. When, when you went, you know, from private practice, then, you know, to in-house, did you get much pressure from your prior firm 
as to like uh, business relationships and sending work? And how did you manage that? It's funny. That pressure actually happened when I was a new associate. <laughs> of course went, it did, because you already were connected. <laughs> right. When I went from the carrier to the firm, I was taken out to, you know, I was, who do you know? Who can we contact? have lunch with these people, set up lunch with those people. And I have to be honest, that was part of the job that I found less appetizing. I, yeah. I didn't love, you know, drumming up business. I was not a natural salesperson. It wasn't, never has been my forte. So that was a little bit unsavory to me, mm-hmm. but I'll make connections. I love to connect people. And as I said before, the relationships are what's super important. I am not going to recommend a a legal relationship with something simply on the fact that I know, I know your name and we worked together a little while. I want to know that who I'm connecting can benefit from each other. So the, the cold calling or that, or, you know, fine. It it just felt really inauthentic to me. Yeah. To, to say, hey, I'm at this firm now. We want your business. That really right. didn't feel right to me. And so I quickly kind of got out of that mode and, and, and moved on to where that wasn't as much of a, an expectation. And honestly, when you're a new associate, the, mo- the, be- the biggest thing you have to worry about is billing. And so you can't bill for client development at that time. Right, <laughs> right, right, right. And, and though, did it feel like when you were there and you're automatically kind of getting courted and pushed by your new employer to kind of bring a business, did you, did you feel like, wait, was I hired because you like me as of an course. attorney or did you think I could help you in other ways? I, I imagine like as a young attorney, that would make me feel like special in one respect, but being like, but not so special. Yeah. <laughs> like that it's, was, it's a very that divergent. <laughs> Absolutely. That was the unsavory part. It just didn't feel right. I, I love doing the work. And I, my philosophy is you do great work that business will come because word will get out. Um, and maybe there's connections to be made, but it felt a little bit heavy handed. And, and going back to the, the networking part, because I remember being like a young attorney and people saying like, oh, you should network. And I'm like, but what does that mean? Like, what, yeah. what am I supposed <laughs> to do? And then they would send me to conferences and I'm like, what am I supposed to do here though? And like, I'm good at talking to people. That's fine. But, and I'd be fine mm-hmm. having that initial conversation. You come home with the ca- all the cards, like now what? Like, what do I, <laughs> right. and, and quite frankly, you would email these people that you would talk to and they would, no one responded to you. <laughs> no, one, no one responded to the person they met for five minutes, you know, getting a drink at the bar, but like no one explained to me how to, how to do this. So I was just kind of like a fish out of water being like, okay, I'll just, I'll just talk to people and bring home all these cards. And I still have them all somewhere in my house. Like I can't throw them out. (laughs) There really is an art to it. If you think about it, it's, and it is, it's not, it's not necessarily innate or natural networking because you want to, sometimes you just want to talk to people and have a conversation and not want to think about, okay, what's my next move or like trying to be strategic about it because sometimes that feels funny. It doesn't feel like, right. Like you're, it's like slimy or something. So I feel like that sweet spot of being a genuine person and actually just making connections with people is sort of the goal if you can get there, but they, they don't teach that in law school. No, and there's no playbook. It's going to be different for everybody and what you're doing. And, you know, at, later in my career, as I was being courted now by vendors, right, who want my business, 
it's about that again you're going to hear me say this over and over authenticity do mm-hmm. are you a genuine person that i really enjoy spending time with and talking to because that means when i'm looking for that service you are likely to be the person i call right i, I actually had a, a business development person from a third-party administrator tpa when she was kind of new to the business we were golfing together and she said tell me from where you sit like wh- who what how do i best market you you know how do we we, because we had been friendly enough and i said really don't bother me check in (laughs) me seriously don't send me something all the time check in with me maybe quarterly maybe a couple times a year um and let me know what's new if you're just checking in to say hey do you have anything that's not where my head is and i've got four thousand other things that deserve my attention so I get a ton of those emails all the time and it's delete, 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 mm-hmm. because a lot of times it's not even services that are, are things we tap into. Um, and when it is, it's really to me about the relationships yeah. and tell me what's good about your business. What do you do better than your competitors? H- how am I going to benefit from engaging with you? And I have in, in various areas, I have my kind of go-to folks that I will reach out to when my team needs something. We don't provide business to, to vendors directly. We are a conduit in certain situations in the broker world. We're claims advocates and consultants. So we work with our clients to help them connect with vendors. So we can make recommendations, we can make introductions. And once again, we're removed from the decision specifically, but I can say, hey, I'm actually really good friends with this person. They work at this TPA. My experience is that their team does a great job. I think you should consider them. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think a lot of it is too, like the, I find it when I get the, the emails from vendors or whatever, and I do the same delete thing. And there, there's no effort to try to like actually develop a relationship. It's just, I'm just going to sell you in this email. And if you don't (laughs) respond to this email in two weeks, I'm going to send another email trying to sell you again. And if I didn't respond to the sale in the first email, like what makes you think in the second or third, I'm suddenly like, oh yeah, now now that they've asked (laughs) two or three more times, I'm going to consider it. You know, I I think that the point is it's that relationship building. You know, I think you're, you're more likely to engage in a business relationship with someone you already have a personal like relationship a genuine personal relationship with agreed and i'll even when when i get those those types of emails and i have a a moment to breathe i'll sometimes even write back and say this is really not a service that is of interest to myself or my team please take me off your mailing list aren't you nice i just delete them (laughs) like i said when i have a moment to breathe that happens it's not a daily event no So, so at what point did you um, decide or like the opportunity to change over to the the broker end arise for you? Sure. Well, I was with a, I was with a major carrier and that's where I kind of had my first leadership experience um, working at, after I was an adjuster, I started doing complex CDs. So I did a lot of um, developers and general contractors. So I was in a lot of mediations with a multiple parties we all know how that works oh, yeah. out 
<laughs> but that's oh, yeah. where I really honed the litigation management skills and understood high exposure and got more in depth. I took those skills I learned as an attorney and really applied them to managing cases to conclusion. And I became a manager for a region for construction defect and then did some work with the subrogation major case unit as well. So I was dealing with high exposure subrogation cases. So it kind of flipped the script. Now I'm a plaintiff, right? right so I right. Kind of got a little bit of a glimpse into that side of pursuing uh, recovery right. and understood that in the, in the large major case realm. And then I became coverage counsel, inside coverage counsel for that company. So the wow. legal comes back around construction defect is heavily heavy coverage. Construction oh, yeah is heavy on coverage. So I got the opportunity to work as coverage counsel supporting the construction claim organization. And that got me yet another additional exposure to a different part of the world. And so I was managing extra contractual litigation and contract and major, you know, heavy coverage issues with policyholders and with other insurers. So again, another aspect of the bit of the claims business. Um, and really the switch to broker was geographic. So I had moved from the West Coast to the East Coast to work for this major carrier and really didn't like it. It was the East Coast. The East Coast <laughs> oh. where I was. Where were you? I was in Connecticut and I'm a California okay. girl. We Megan's a Connecticut gal. I am. Yeah. And, and no shade on Connecticut. It wasn't a great fit for me culturally. <laughs> um, I have great friends that are still there. Um, but I was kind of saying, I was kind of doing a reflection and saying, what, what's going on? What, well, why, why am I not happy? And, and there was an opportunity to move back West. That's how I came to Denver in the role of coverage council, because we were litigating a ton of cases in the Southwest. And so I was here a bit. And so I was able to move, um, move to Denver. And then while I was working as coverage counsel in Denver, I was recruited by a broker. Mm -hmm. um, a broker saw my LinkedIn profile. They were looking for a claims manager for the broker and said, would you like to consider this? Yeah. And I went through a gauntlet of interviews um, that the more I interviewed, the more I thought this looks great. And somebody had planted the seed in me years prior saying, hey, you'd be a good advocate for policyholders from the broker perspective. So it kind of fed that again, wanting to help people, wanting to educate people, being part of a bigger picture. So I flipped to the broker side about a year after moving to Denver. And it was that now the world really opens up because from a, on the broker side, it's not just about GL workers comp property. It's all kinds of claims. I'm learning about insurance products I never heard of before, right? So that was a huge education process. And in the meantime, I'm leading a team of claims advocates working with our, with our clients. And again, a different perspective on how do you impact the outcome of a claim? How do you work with your clients even when there aren't claims going on to prepare them to make their program better, to work with safety folks to avoid and deter workers' comp claims, to help clients through the process. 
Um, and it's all commercial insurance. So I'm working with business people, sometimes business owners, sometimes risk managers, sometimes HR folks who their business is not insurance. Their business is their business. And so to have someone shepherd them through the process and explain to them why things happen the way they happen and, and help them get the outcome that is ideal for them, just kind of fed all of the, my motivators. I, you know, I was able to help people. I was able to educate people. I under, I learned how to navigate big claim renewal. How does it impact the cost of risk, right? I I learned the term total cost of risk. It's not just about your premium when you're, when you're paying for risk transfer, the premium is one piece and the variable risk or the cost of your claims is another piece that impacts how much it costs and working with clients who were loss sensitive to where they retained a certain amount of risk and had to interact with administrators and creating and maintaining those relationships. So it was a huge learning curve. And uh, I was able to lead a team that I thought was performing at a very high level. Yeah. Do you think that you would like sort of uh, for the future of your career to stay on this side of the fence? on the broker side, or do you think you'll, you'll visit the the other side uh, at some point in the future? Yeah. Well, I'm at the point in my career where I, where I can see the end of it. And, <laughs> and, and, and so the broker ha- is where I want to be. And since I joined IMA not quite a year ago, I, again, am leading, leading their entire claims team. And IMA is in a huge growth phase. We are growing organically by um, double digits, we're um, partnering with other brokers. So we're at a place where the organization is in huge growth phase. So being at asked to lead the claims organization within this enterprise that is really shooting for the future is a whole additional set of challenges. Learning um, all I've got folks across the country from the West Coast to the East Coast and in every industry vertical. Our clients um, are in so many different practice areas from education to hospitality to energy to construction. Um, don't want to leave anybody out. Real estate, you know, we've got all these different um, industry practices. And so and insurance is really about understanding your clients. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the great things about being in insurance that I've learned is you touch everything. I'm a, I'm a firm believer that insurance makes the world go round. And so the it's more nice. I can learn about a client and being as a managing director, I don't have direct client interaction all the time, but I'm touching all of my team relationships with their clients and I get to swoop in. So when you ask the question, Melissa, do you think about going to the other side? I do get to flex that muscle sometimes when I get to come in and and help the advocates make an argument, Um, you know, look at, look at coverage a little different way, tap into different resources. And then of course I'm a insurance nerd. So I read all of the publications. I listen to the podcasts. I try to keep, keep tabs on people on LinkedIn and their stories. So just try to keep kind of a view and a, and an immersion in all aspects of the business. Yeah. And, and really on the broker side too, you, it, 
the way it's set up, you, you kind of, you get to have your hands in everything and you really get to be just like, just that the advocate to your, for your clients, you know, cause it, you're kind of there to help them with the, the carrier and you're there to help them with maybe the outside counsel and if they have issues with the coverage and cause like, think about it. I mean, the brokers are help are designing the, policy plans you know that you're negotiating that with the carrier so you're right integral in the center of it all so you probably found like it's almost like you found your happy place to to ride out the you know your your last (laughs) your last years of your career many years though I don't doesn't look like you retire anytime soon (laughs) definitely my happy place and you mentioned you know the carriers and the relationships it's also a matter of managing it's not just I'm the advocate and I'm going to pound on the adjuster until I get what the client wants because we also have those are our trading partners yeah so it's not go in, beat them up and run away. These are relationships that are sustained over time and can need to be continued to be sustained. So it's, it's never about burning bridges. It's about how can I help you? And this is with the industry, the way it is now, we have a lot of new people in the claims world, especially with carriers and TPAs, they're newer to the, to managing claims. So I like to take the approach and share this with my team. You're there to help them find the right answer. I I always say, help them follow the bouncing ball. If you know, and that's where the legal training comes in. Here's what the policy says, here's what happened. And here's why the policy affords coverage as opposed to brokers who may not have claims advocates just saying, you need to do this for me because we place a lot of business with you. Well, coming from carrier background, that's a, that's an ex gratia payment. We don't we're, we don't want to do that. If we can pay a claim because it's covered, that's ideal. So our job is to help them make the art, understand why and how it's covered. Now, has anything changed, or have you witnessed any change on the broker? And as a lot of the insure tech companies are really rising up, so they, you know, my understanding is the brokers aren't really involved in those. In, in those operations. So, you know, has there been a change that you've witnessed that like some companies are moving away from utilizing a broker to like design their policies to, you know, just going online and doing it themselves? Well, that's in, interesting being at IMA because we've embraced InsureTech and we okay. have we have teams who will look into it and see how it can help us and our clients do okay. business better. Uh, we have an entire industry we call advanced industries. So it's advanced manufacturing, it's insure tech, it's where we just placed, you might, I, we, it, I saw in our news, we just placed the first uh, insurance certificate as an NFT through, oh, wow. <laughs> right, through the blockchain. You know? So we yeah. were the first ones to do that. So we as a company have embraced the technology. Um, and so that's kind of exciting to see how we can leverage and find synergies in right. a relationship business to keep it personal, to keep it human and leverage the technology to really make it better. I think we've all had experiences where technology is intended to help. And sometimes initially it's a little, it's a little difficult. So we get on the other side of that. And I just feel so fortunate to be in an organization where we have people who speak that language not I, <laughs> and can, yeah. and translate and make that technology really work f- 
for us in, in our disciplines and for our clients. Yeah. And I love, I love hearing like the embracing of the insure tech too, because I mean, things you can't, you have to kind of change as, as, as things evolve. And, and I think as a society, you're moving more technology based. So, you know, you can't, yeah. same things with like lawyers, you can't do everything the same way just because that's how it was always done. You know, that doesn't really work. It's, it's not going away. The, the technology isn't going away. <laughs> well, and we can all find, we, we all have examples in our own lives. I would say I'm never an early adopter, but I can be a net promoter when, you know, when I've have experience, had a good experience. That's something that when I have a good technology experience, I mean, when I was a field adjuster out investigating accident scenes, I didn't have GPS or a cell phone. I had a pager and I, and I was getting out map books to figure out where things happened and drawing diagrams. So it was extremely low tech. Um, I, I don't even think I had a computer at my desk at my first you know, when I was first an adjuster, we dictated letters. And so there it's, I've seen over the course of 30 plus years, some of the evolution, and certainly there's going to be starts and stops, right? There's going to, there's going to be false starts. And then you find your way and you find your footing and you find a better way forward. Yeah. It is, it is funny that you mentioned the maps, having that conversation with my, my kids being like, oh, we used to have to like print out directions. <laughs> Or like use an actual map, like if we- <laughs> and it, it was a gigantic book that just sat in the oh, back wow. seat of the car. Oh, and my, to, my uh, first car, my dad made sure he's like, "Well, here's your map of Connecticut," and <laughs> my car, so right? I would know how to get around. Uh-huh. Well, at least there's only two highways in Connecticut. Interstate <laughs> highways, I should say. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about I, like IMA. You touched on on your your role there, but how how is you know other than you know IMA really embrace like is embrace the insurtech and embrace the technology? Like how is it a broker that sets itself apart from some of the other brokers that might might be out there? Absolutely, it's so we come from a regional background, but and our kind of the phrase that really sits with me is we try to be a regional broker at scale. So we have the best of both worlds. We have the, the, the trading power because of our volume and we can be very personal with our clients. So IMA was, a, was an aggregation of some regional brokers and that has continued to be a part of our growth strategy is that we're partnering, partnering with additional regional brokers. So our partners and our, our IMA offices are very much in the community with our clients. We're ve- we're very community minded. We do a ton of outreach and interaction with our communities. We have a foundation um, you know, to, to fund that and to help our community organizations. And we're very local while at the same time having the the size and scale to be able to be play with the big boys. Yeah. <laughs> so so our client every client can be a big fish and they get the benefit of our scale in the industry. Um so that that's a wonderful place to be to be able to forge those really close relationships with clients and have the the power of the the trading scale to bring to bear, you know, to attract amazing talent. I've got a team of 
claims professionals that come from a variety of backgrounds that can speak any language the client needs to and help them through their, you know, again, achieve those amazing claims outcomes. Um, and we have that throughout our business in our on our account teams, in our specialty lines of coverage. We have a fantastic executive risk team. We have the insure tech and the, the advanced industries teams. So we're able to attract people who can go deep into their industries yeah. and really be that valuable strategic partner with our clients. That's just so important to have someone like have people in those roles that really understand and can really speak the language in those, you know, niche areas. Definitely. That that was a perfect setup, Megan, for my question, actually, because I wanted to ask you about um, I know, the telepathic Zoom. Um, the construction defect is sort of industry. I, I've done some work in that as well. And um, I always say that I didn't expect to like it as much as I did, but it's sort of like putting puzzle pieces together when you're sort of looking at all of the different trades. With respect to the, the industry now, are you seeing um, a sort of drop off in claims? Are you seeing a spike in claims uh, in the in the defect industry because the world is so uncertain right now with shipping and and product supplies and and things like that. Where, can you give us just like a bird's eye view of what it's looking like? I think construction, from what I'm seeing, is is the claims world is a little bit more driven by the um, builder's risk and the professional services. Um, and so we see a lot more claims occurring during construction. And when you talk about issues with supply chains and things like that, we see a lot more delays happening. Inter Fascinatingly, construction isn't slowing down. It's continuing and, and, and at a pace in, in a lot of different places. So, and we're seeing a lot more uh, RAFs, you know, and uh, insurance programs that are uh, project-based. Right. Right. And so that seems to be if there's a trend, that's the trend that I'm seeing is that more of the of the construction projects are happening project based programs. So we're dealing with wraps and we ha may have clients who have their own program and their policy. And when they work on a particular project, they're subject to that that wrap. Right. Right. Um, right. Um, so it, so there, there's a, a an aspect of managing their participation in a claim under the wrap. While also appreciating and understanding and help them see how that can impact or not their their what we call their program policies, um, and where those sometimes may dovetail or interact because sometimes there's a wrap exclusion on a client's GL policy. Sometimes they are excess of the wrap, so that's where in the broker we kind of see all the different ways that an insurance program can be designed. And I'm sure that's where your coverage experience comes into play as well. <laughs> it helps quite a bit, definitely. Um, more, yeah, we see a lot of, con we're looking at a lot of contracts and looking at how they interact with the insurance policies. Um, so in, in your day to day and taking on like everything that, all your experience that you've carried, carried upwards and forwards, um, now being in the role that you are now, what are some of, you know, your, your pressure points, your pain points that you experience, like some of those things that keep you up at night or, you know, want 
you want to bang your head through your computer screen (laughs) 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 or as I often do I sometimes throw something you know out of my office out of anger (laughs) but you know in in your world what are some of your your pain points yeah again designing and you know it's so I'm designing a, a claims department for a broker of the future while trying to preserve the great things that are already in place Um, It's something I learned walking into a leadership position. You want to preserve the things that work and improve where the opportunities exist. So when you ask what what are the things I think about uh, when I can't sleep, it's about how do I create some kind of consistency so that our clients know what to expect regardless of who's servicing their account, Um, creating consistency across the internal teams, creating a consistent expectation across our uh, internal and external partners and our clients. So it's really looking at kind of looking at things from 10,000 or 30,000 feet and then honing down to how do we make that accessible to clients and efficient and palatable and workable for our associates. Yeah. You know, a lot, I ask a lot of why questions when somebody asks me, here's what I'm doing and this is my challenge. I'm saying, I'll ask, why are we doing that? What are we trying to accomplish? Mm-hmm. Is there a better way? So that that's a bit of a theme. What What are we doing? Why are we doing it? Can we do it better? So I always encourage people when you're talking to your clients, ask them what their goal is. Yeah. What is their objective? Before, you know, because a lot of times, you know, we pick up clients from that have been with other brokers or maybe haven't been with a broker and they say, well, we want this. And a lot of times it's the, the default is let's keep doing what's been what's what's been working. And I want to encourage people to say, OK, and take a step back and find out if what you're doing is accomplishing and adding value. We want to be yeah. value driven. Right. So really understanding what the client needs and that requires an in-depth conversation and then being innovative and how we meet those needs maybe in a new way maybe with a different aspect of an old way or just what's the best way to accomplish those objectives and that's something that i think we're starting to see more but there's been a lot because the pace has been so fast there's been a lot of we've always done it this way, and that's just not acceptable to me. I want to know why are we doing it that way? Is there a better way to do it? And are we yeah. really giving the clients what they need and what's adding value to their business? And I think I mean this that is a complaint I've heard I don't I don't even know countless times. And I I, I think there's a level of uncomfortableness when you break out of the familiar. So that's why I think a lot of people are like scared to do it. Like they're scared to ask those questions because they're worried the answer is gonna be like, oh shit, now I got to do something new. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, and it, it's terrible, but I, I kind of think that's the, could be the, the general mentality about it. Cause it, I mean, I think for everybody changes uncomfortable. So, Absolutely. and it's much easier just to do it the way that's been working. Cause it's been working, but that doesn't mean it's the best. The way, yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> And that's the wonderful thing about bringing different teams together and different people to the table is that we all come with our own background and experience and have done things lots of different ways. So you may have an idea from someone else that while it might be a change, 
maybe it's the right one. And I say this all the time. It's not a switch that flips. It's an evolution. Mm -hmm. You aren't going to get somebody to do things, do something that they've been doing all along and just switch it tomorrow. Right. It's a process. It's a process to get there. Sometimes it's a quicker process. Sometimes it's a slower process, but really having the vision of where you want to be and mapping out the process at whatever the appropriate pace is to get there, that that's an exercise in patience. And that that's really something that my patience waxes and wanes mm-hmm. naturally. And so right. there's things that I'd love to be able to flip, snap my fingers and they are, they change. And you have to recognize that people are, they do get uncomfortable with change and to be able to make changes in increments that are palatable and comfortable is, is kind of the goal. And, you know, with that mindset in, in mind, you know, how do you go about building up your team? Cause I mean, you have a whole team of people who work for you and you want to have the very best work for you and the kind of share your, your vision. So, you know, what are some things that you look for when you're building that team? It's, you know, I look at, I look at where people have come from and try to dig into how they approach problems. Um, you know, I ask a lot of questions when we're, when we're interviewing people or adding to the team about, you know, things that they've encountered and how they've gone about resolving them, you know, talking about how, how do they manage time? How do they, um, if you have, a, if you're given a problem that you've never seen before, what do you do? Where do you start? right? How, how do you work through? Because really, I think the skills that are so important in, in claims handling and in claims advocacy are really problem solving communication and education. And I don't mean the education you bring necessarily to the table, but the education you can provide to someone else. Yeah. So communication and collaboration, I think is so important. Recognizing your resources. I, I say this all the time. No one person can know it all but know who you can tap into or where you can look to answer those questions that may not be in your wheelhouse. And that's, again, the advantage to bringing teams together is that we have expertise all over the place. And so I, as a leader, try to bring my team together to understand each other, to say, hey, you've got an, you've got an issue with workers' comp and maybe that's not your first language. We've got these five people who do nothing but workers' comp. Yeah. And they can help you with that and under and, and really creating a sense of belonging with the team. So there's never, ever, never any hesitancy to reach out for help with something. And again, that's a process as well, because these are folks who maybe haven't worked together for very long or they've been in different offices under different circumstances. So building those connections and bridges is really important. And in fact, I would say the person who thinks they, they know everything is the most dangerous person in the room. <laughs> like, I would much rather talk to someone and be like, and have them be like, I don't know anything about that. Um, but I know someone who does than someone who like, just gives me some whatever they think they should. Sure. You know, and give me misinformation. I'd rather, please just tell me you don't know. Cause I'm coming to you cause I don't know. Exactly. <laughs> well, and we've all been in situations where we're presented with a problem and it's something that we, that we're kind of really without answers. And yeah. so I, I've done legal research where I'm trying to find the answer to something. And I'm sure there's someone that knows that, but I wasn't aware at the time of who that resource is. 
and, and there's a delicate balance with when somebody comes to someone else with a question, not just giving them the answer, right? but also think about their development and help them yeah. show them how to find the answer or how you come to the answer with the, with what's in your toolbox. Yeah. Sometimes just being pointed in the right direction makes all the difference, especially when you're first starting out somewhere, yes. you know. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Although I, I even think though now, you know, later through at least my career, I like to talk to people almost to like check me, be like, this is yeah. what I'm thinking. And I don't tell them if I think I'm right or I'm wrong or whatever. I'm like, you know, what do you think? Just so... You know, uh, if they think the complete opposite of me, then I'm like, okay, maybe I need to rethink this. If they're in agreement, I'm like, okay, like I, I like to check myself. And then a lot of times, and this is what I think is so interesting about like do legal work is like they ha they see it slightly different, like not opposite. And then it like and then it evolves, you know, and you have a yeah. much wider view, and you're able to actually provide a better assessment and you know product for whoever you're serving on that because you're able to like you know just explore it a little more and realize like I'm not the only person who might know something about this you know I work with some smart people they probably have some ideas too <laughs> well, and that, yeah and that that kind of evokes one of my other passions which is diversity mm -hmm. right if, if if everybody at the table has the same perspective are we growing so right, let's bring right. Perspectives, and there's so many aspects of people and their background and where they came from and what they know that just adding perspectives to the mix is going to spark additional ideas. You know, I, I love a brainstorm where you've got people from lots of different walks that can bring a different view to the same exact set of facts. Yeah. Well, have you considered this? Well, gosh, no you know, and then talking it through and you're absolutely right, Megan, the more perspectives you have and the diversity of thought at the table, ultimately the better outcome you're going to have. Yes. We don't all need to agree. <laughs> and in disagreeing, we learn and we grow. Yeah. Yes. This is one of those, one of those things that I, I try to teach, you know, my children. <laughs> you don't need to agree with what I'm telling you to do. <laughs> and I appreciate your opposition. <laughs> but you are actually going to have to do what I'm saying. It's a little different from, from you don't have, professional life. but <laughs> You don't have to agree, but you have to respect it. Yes. And it's not that different from professional life. Sometimes we're interacting with folks who have that mindset. <laughs> yeah, and act like children, too. <laughs> sometimes I feel like I'm grounded right sometimes I feel like I'm, I'm being punished <laughs> and, and again that kind of comes back to one of my other themes is just that over communication because I think where we often get sideways with our clients where claims handlers can get sideways with their insureds is not telling them what's happening mm -hmm. right so yeah. if there's if you're doing something let people know and I've been in that situation where you look at a claim file and there's nothing in there and you know that things have been happening and, and people get their head down and they don't communicate it. So I just had a situation recently where I, we were trying to get coverage for an additional insured and there was a ton of communication going back and forth when the question came up the person having those communications was unavailable and I, and we had to dig to find 
those communications. And so my advice was when you're doing something and it's, and it's important to someone else, let them know what your process is as you're going through it. You may be waiting to tell them good news, but they're going to feel much more cared for if you're telling them what you're doing and why you're doing it. Yeah. So that over communication is something that I've learned over the years that you can never get sideways from over communicating yeah. when you're working on behalf of someone else. Yeah. I, I learned that early on too. I, I was negotiating with, you know, counsel and I had all the negotiations here <laughs> and, and I knew where things were and I knew that things were moving along, but my boss, then I got a separate communication from somebody else and didn't have the in like couldn't look inside my head and didn't know everything that was going on and had to have a conversation with me being like well you have to like like you it needs to be somewhere you know I I can't just and this is very early on and I remember I, I, I was upset about it at the time because I was like but I was doing what I was thought I was you know you're young um right. but it's true like someone if they it's a okay like, they might not know that all this stuff has been going on and then they might miscommunicate to somebody because they don't know what you know right. and, happening. and silence is often presumed to be in action yeah if, yeah. if, if you know if if i have a dispute with a with some with a contractor on my property and i'm not hearing anything and they're not here doing anything my assumption is they're not doing anything right there may be all kinds of scrambling happening at the office but i'm not seeing it as the customer and our customers need to see it yeah and sometimes it's so quick as just being like, hey, just just wanted to check in and let you know this is going on, you know, behind the scenes, have nothing to report at this moment, hope to have an, a more substantial update for you soon. Sure. That was right. great. That was a perfect <laughs> report. <laughs> Save that one. <laughs> and everybody's, everybody's timetable is different, right? For me, I might get nervous after not hearing anything for a week. Somebody else, it might be longer than that. So that's, again, highlights understanding your client yeah. and who you're working with and what their pace of play is and what's important to them so that you can ensure that the, you are communicating the things they want to hear when they want to hear them yeah. so that they always feel you're doing their, you're, you're working on their behalf. Yeah, for working sure. Working their goal. Um, and I, I also do think that some of the fear behind like not the lack of communication while things are going on is the, the fear that you're going to say this is happening and then ask you a lot of questions about what's happening and then be like, well, crap, now I need to respond to all this. <laughs> like, but I think and that generally, might happen. yeah, it might happen, <laughs> but I think generally people are like, okay, there's stuff going on. I know there, there's stuff moving, so you don't have to worry that like there's no action happening, but yeah, I think that right. is the, some underlying fear. Like, oh, I might get bombarded with questions. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> if it's Donna's case, yeah, you will. Yeah. <laughs> Donna's going to ask you some questions. <laughs> why, why are you doing that? Why are you doing it that way? <laughs> so glad you emailed. Yeah. <laughs> well, Donna, we are just about out of time, but I didn't want to close up before. Um, we're asking one of my favorite close up closing questions is, you know, looking back to where where you started and where you are now, is there any advice that you would give your younger self knowing what you know now? 
probably the biggest piece of advice I would give my younger self or anybody starting in their career is be authentic. Mm -hmm. Don't try to conform who you are to what you think other people want you to be. Be your authentic self. And I think we touched on a lot of that. Admit when you don't know something. Reach out for help when you need it. Be who you are and bring that to the table. Um, or you're going to get yourself twisted in knots and, and really maybe lose sight of who you are. So I just, I think authenticity is so important and I'll jump back to that over communication. Don't do anything in a vacuum or in a silo, let people know what's going on and, and bring them into the conversation. Yeah. Now I need to like go email like all my clients and all my files. I know. I know. <laughs> I, I got to go touch base. <laughs> like I'm, I'm getting stressed out. I'm like, I'm going to make it my to-do list in my head right now. <laughs> Second day of the month, I got to circle back. Yeah. <laughs> I'm falling behind. <sighs> well, Donna, thank you so much for, for joining us. It was such a pleasure having you on. I love having on, you know, fans as guests and i you know it makes me so happy when i have on people that actually listen um so thank you so much for spending yes. some time with us this afternoon thank you thank and you I, for having and thank me. you for to melissa for finding you oh i'm yeah. so I'm my pleasure <laughs> and i i just hope i was as pithy and interesting as so many of your other guests thank you guys oh, well. so much Absolutely. I, I think so. And of course, if, to all our listeners, if you like what you hear, please like and subscribe to the Defense of Arrest on Apple Podcasts. And you can also find us on YouTube at TDNR Podcast. <laughs>